All right. So if you are uh, new and have, have not been here recently, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus, and uh, we are in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to do the whole chapter today, largely because this chapter is united by a theme of sign and wonder. So it opens with signs given so that people will believe, and it closes with signs received to be believed. And right in the middle, there's some insane passages. And we're not going to skip those because every word of the Bible is inspired and profitable for teaching. Uh, it would be cheating for me to skip them. Uh, but, I, you know, there are some times you wish you could. So, um, but my guess is, is that this week, perhaps even, spending time with your family, there have been times when you have prayed for an unbelieving spouse, a family member, or a friend, and you have thought to yourself, if God would just do this, then they'd believe. So-and-so would believe. If I, in another life, I was a, I was a semi-professional photographer, worked for a photography studio in town. We did all sorts of stuff, commercial uh, photography and uh, all weddings, all sorts of stuff. Um, but before that, I was a hobbyist. If you go to my parents' house, I thought about it because it's Thanksgiving. If you go to my parents' house, on the right side of the wall, there's this gallery of all the photographs I wish would just disappear. They're terrible pictures. But I guess a mother never outgrows her love for her baby or her baby's art. And those pictures are like 20 years old, but they're still up. And um, the, most of the photos are cityscapes or landscapes because portraits really intimidated me uh, before portrait mode. And uh, one of them is uh, of a parking lot. Not, my mom never hanged this up because she has sense. But one of the pictures that I took was of a parking lot light with the sunset behind it in the background. And in the foreground is this parking lot light. So I liked a lot of trees, angles of buildings and stuff. And um, I took that uh, full of the emo vibes of the mid-2000s. Brand new was probably playing in the background. And I gave that as a gift to the girl who had led me to Christ and uh, she and another friend had faithfully witnessed to me for eight months every day in the parking lot after school. Uh, so that, 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 uh, that light was a feature of our life for those eight months. And the reason I took that photo was because there was this moment many months into it when in just frustration I just said, if God would change the color of the sky, then I would believe. I'm sure many of us have said, if God would do such and such, so and so would believe, Right? So I want to ask an important question today. In Exodus chapter 4, God gives Moses three signs so that the people believe. Why did God not change the sky for Zach Carter? Right? What's, what's there? So here's, my, here's the answer to that question. God's signs, his wonders, provoke either reverence or rejection. They're important authenticating marks to testify to God's word. These signs and wonders are authenticating marks to testify to God's word. They reveal, really, the condition of the heart within. So our passage today, again, is chapter 4, the whole thing. It's very long, so I'm not going to read it. I'm going to summarize it in parts and draw your attention to certain verses. But it's united and kind of linked by this theme of signs and wonders throughout. Signs given at the beginning so people believe, and signs at the end received, and the Hebrew people did believe, right? That's what happens at the end. Again, because of the size of the passage, I'm going to read every verse, but summarize again. So you can think of chapter 4 as divided into two scenes. The first scene is Moses is still at the burning bush. And the second scene is he's leaving the burning bush, going back through uh, Jethro to talk to Jethro, back into Egypt. So scene 1, 
burning bush, scene two, the journey back to Egypt in Egypt. And within each of these, there's kind of two points. So scene one, scene two, and then two moments in each. The first moment that happens, to help you summarize, you have a place to hang everything that we'll be talking about today, is Moses talks back to God for the second time and says to the Lord, he says, they won't believe that we've talked. They're not going to believe that we've spoken face to face. How will they believe? So Yahweh gives signs. Remember the first, the first thing last week is, who am I going to even say this person is? And he's like, well, this is my name. Tell them my name. In second statement, which is here, scene one, part one, they're not even going to believe we talked. Okay? He says, well, I'm going to give you signs to authenticate this. Then number two, the second thing that Moses says back is, uh, I can't even talk, so this is just a terrible idea. And God says, well, I made your mouth, right? And then we'll see something else about Moses uh, embedded within that I can't talk, his fourth back talk. And then in scene two, there's two points, because he goes and he talks to Jethro. Excuse me, there's three points. He goes and he talks to Jethro, and he tells Jethro again, I need to go back to my people. So Moses is identifying with the people of God again. Then there's the section which is just called by commentators the bloody, uh, bloody bridegroom. And then the last section is when he goes back into Egypt. He announces that God is visiting his people and the people bow in worship. So two scenes and uh, the people will hear Moses and Aaron by the end of this chapter. So let's look first at our scenes to convince the Hebrews, verses 1 through 9, the scenes to convince the Hebrews. We've not spent a whole lot of time about Moses' going back and forth with Yahweh, but this is the second in four moments when he talks back to the Lord. Now let's take a minute to think about this. What does it mean to backtalk? Kids, what does it mean to backtalk? Evan, you raise your hand, you want to say? Okay, that's totally fine. Yeah, you can say. That's right, when you talk back to somebody. That's exactly what backtalk means. If a parent or teacher asks you to clean up your space right away, right now, and you say to them, I don't want to do it, that's backtalk, right? What we're really saying when we say that is, I think I know better than you right now, and I'm going to tell you what I think about that. Sometimes some of us adults backtalk occasionally. It always, it always goes bad. It always goes bad. That's what Moses is doing here. He's timid. He's very nervous because of what happened to him in Egypt the last time he tried to intervene and help somebody, right? Why? why? He, remember, he's seen those two Hebrews fight. He's like, why are you guys fighting each other? And what happens? Who made you the judge over us? So Moses is timid here. So they're not going to believe me. They know me as the Egyptian guy, the guy who killed, right? They're seeking my life. But can we see something about the character of God here in verses 1 through 9? Let's make this clear. It's never right to backtalk God. It's never right to backtalk anybody who God puts in authority over us, a trusted adult. But see how patient and merciful God is with Moses in his weakness. God knows what Moses has gone through, and he's, he knows his weakness. In verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, we see Moses is afraid people will not believe him, that God has visited with him. So God gives him three signs to show to the Hebrew people, which is pretty remarkable because he even allows Moses to practice these things. He's so patient, he allows Moses to practice before he has to go and do the things he did. So he gives him three signs to prove that God has commissioned him for this task. What are each of these signs? The first one is related to his staff. Verses 
2 through 5, Moses is told to throw his staff on the ground, and what happens? Remember, it turns into a serpent, and God tells him to pick the serpent up by the tail, which we'll talk about that in a second. It turns what? Back into a staff. Upon picking it back up, it turns back into a staff. When he throws the staff down, pick it back up by the tail, which, by the way, kids, is the exact opposite of how you want to pick up a snake. Just the Word of God is inerrant, inspired, profitable for teaching, but this is a moment to clarify. You don't pick a snake up by its tail. You pick it up by the head. So don't take that advice. God is proving to Moses that he has so much power over the snake that Moses can pick it up by its tail and it won't hurt him. Commentators suggest that this first sign of the staff being thrown down and picked up by the tail, shows how God can take ordinary things which are just lying around, like a shepherd's staff. Moses is, what is he doing when he's out and encounters Yahweh at the burning bush? He's shepherding a flock. It's not a special staff that's like come down from heaven somewhere. This is his crook that he's just carrying around as he's milling about in Midian, okay? And he throws his staff down and it becomes... The snake. So what's the point of this? It's that God can take ordinary things and do extraordinary things with them. This prefigures, in a lot of ways, the plagues that follow. Gnats, flies, disease, these sorts of things are very ordinary, common nuisances, but God is going to use these ordinary things to make them terrors or marks of grace. But why a snake? Why a snake? Verse 3, why, why does it become a snake? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but there's probably two interrelated possibilities. One commentator noted that serpents were worshipped, at least revered, in the ancient Near East. So they were revered as objects of wisdom, symbols of fertility, and all sorts of things. In Egypt, they were particularly revered because they were the symbol of Egyptian royal authority. So the asp was a symbol of royal authority within Egypt. In fact, on the headdress of Pharaoh would have been a serpent, an asp. So the, the snake is a symbol of royal authority. So Moses handling a serpent without being bitten is a sign to the Hebrews that the things that Pharaoh ought to have control over, the things that ought to be under his domain, are actually under submission to Yahweh. And the things which might bite the Hebrews on the way out won't be able to because God can do whatever he wants with serpents like Pharaoh. And then the second reason we'd be remiss to ignore the first promise of the gospel, how this prefigures and anticipates that first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Moses' mastery over the snake prefigures how Christ disarms Satan and then eventually in the last days will crush the ancient serpent, throwing him uh, and destroying him ultimately in the last days. This is certainly a sign for the Hebrews. It's certainly a sign for the Hebrews. God's sign subverts the symbol of Egypt and shows how Yahweh has complete control over the situation in which they find themselves. The symbol of Pharaoh's authority, it means nothing to the Lord. His royal authority has no place in God's heavenly court. Sign number two is a hand. What's up with the hand? In 6 through 7, Moses is told to put his hand in his cloak. He takes it out, and it's covered in a leprous white snow-like uh, thing. 
When he puts it back in and takes it out, the hand returns clean. That's chapter 4, 6 through 7. Why? Why is it a skin disease? Again, we're not told exactly why. We know that later on in the law, this is going to be a sign of uncleanliness. But whether or not they have the law, which would clarify what they should feel about leprosy, people in the ancient Near East had a prejudice against skin disease regardless. The Hebrews and all others, for that matter, would have been horrified by a leprous infection coming out of the cloak and seeing that. What's the point? The sign shows the people that Yahweh can take clean things and make them unclean and then take unclean things and clean them again, much like he's going to do to his people through their experience in the wilderness. Take a people who were clean, polluted by Egypt, and pull them out and clean them and make them his people uh, to settle the promised land. And the third sign relates to the river, relates to the water. You'll see it there. The, the first two signs are something that Moses performs himself, so he throws down the staff and the other ones with his hands. But this one, this last sign, Moses is completely passive. He's completely passive. He takes the water, and he's not the one doing the sign, because what does he do with the water? He puts it on the ground, and Yahweh acts on it, and it turns into blood. This would have left no doubt in anyone's mind that Moses is not like the magicians of Pharaoh in Exodus 7 who are going to replicate some of these signs with what the text calls their secret arts. Moses pours water on, on the ground, and it turns to blood. Why the blood? Similar to what's a, what we said earlier, this extraordinary authenticating sign is to show that Moses is authorized to speak on God's behalf. And each week I've reminded us that the Nile River is a God personified for the people of Egypt. If you live in a desert, water is valuable to you, and this lifeline runs through your desert land. To have this lifeline of Egypt, this river turned to blood, the water from this river turned to blood, shows God's authority is not just over the Egyptian crown, the snake, clean and unclean with the hand, but that he has an unrivaled command of all things in creation, an unrivaled command of all things in creation, this supposed domain of the Egyptian pantheon. Remember from last week, we highlighted over and over again, God's problem, his war is not with the Egyptian people. His war is against the idols which hold the Egyptian people captive. And we remember, just to remind you again, the promise God holds out for the Egyptians in the book of Isaiah that God does have a promise for the Egyptian people. Because God is not making war against the Egyptian people. He's making war against the false gods which hold them captive. And this last sign demonstrates that even the gods of Egypt have no power in Yahweh's heavenly realm. So what's the purpose of each of these signs? The staff, the hand, and the water. What's the purpose of them? Each of these signs testifies that Moses is the leader authorized by God to speak on behalf of God. Let me just call attention to a couple verses. Exodus chapter 4, verse 5. Why? That they may believe that the Lord, the God of, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you, Moses. Exodus 4, 8. If they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, God said, then they might believe, that, excuse me, they may believe the latter sign. Verse, that was verse 8. Now, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power. 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. So throughout history, God has given these signs as a marker to testify to what he has said will happen or the trustworthiness of somebody who's speaking or claiming to speak on his behalf. So let's go through just a couple of examples of how signs work so far in the book of Genesis and then how they anticipate how we could think about Moses. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, two purposes, for, for days and for years. We're coming up on the Christmas season when a star was given as a sign. Right? Genesis 1.14. Two, two purposes. We tend to think of them mainly as seasons because that's typically how we experience our nearest star as a sign for the season. But God gives them for signs and for seasons. The star over Bethlehem is one of those signs. Genesis 4.15. Here's where the same idea but a different word is present. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Genesis 4.15 says, The Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be then taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. The same idea is present here. How will they know not to kill Cain for what he's done? God puts a special mark uniquely on Cain as a sign. Do not kill this man or vengeance will be taken out upon you sevenfold. Genesis 9, 12 through 13. This shall be the sign of the covenant I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And then finally, Genesis 17. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Signs to testify to the trustworthiness of God. And all of our moments here in Exodus and for the rest of the book of Moses. And just a little bit later, Yahweh is going to do impressive miracles. The Septuagint translates this as wonders before Pharaoh, which will not move his heart. Similar to signs, these are acts that God uses to testify to the trustworthiness of his word. So we have signs and wonders, miracles present which do something specific, which is to testify that the person speaking or claiming to speak on behalf of God actually speaks for God. And can I suggest to you that it's important for us to think about this because there's an interesting play on the words between the book of Exodus here and the New Testament. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he gives many what? Signs. That he not only has divine authority that can be trusted but he is, in fact, the very word of God. In John alone, there are 17 times where signs are an important authenticating mark of Jesus' ministry. And he doesn't need to have somebody else give him these signs, like Moses had to have them given. Jesus Christ, because he is God, he performs these signs and interprets himself as the fulfillment of them. But there's a place where there's an overwhelming amount of signs and wonders performed. You probably might be thinking about it. It's in the book of Acts with the ministries of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. But there's a sharp drop-off of those in Acts chapter 15. And I think that unlocks for us, it helps us understand what's happening in Exodus chapter 4. So there's a sharp drop-off. And there's some clues, again, that help us. Because even though they, uh, the, the, the phrase occurs later in the book of Acts, it's only referencing things that happen prior to the Jerusalem council. 
And then everything after that, Luke never calls a sign or a wonder. It's a thing that God does independent of the men who are testifying to God's work. For example, when Paul prays over Eutychius to heal him, it's much more like uh, 1 Kings uh, 17 than it is like Exodus. So let's just review some of those. Why, what, what is going on in the book of Acts? The signs and wonders authenticated apostolic, the apostolic message and ministry of the people who needed an authenticating sign that they were indeed, that these people were indeed speaking the words of God. Just as there were two signs given to Moses, which authenticated him in one sign, which demonstrated God's power over life and death, this phrase, signs and wonders, authenticates apostolic ministry in the book of Acts until Acts 15 and then drops off. Again, every other Every other work that happens in the book of Acts, Luke doesn't call a sign or a wonder. It certainly is incredible that God does those things. But the phrase drops off, and I think that's really important, right? Because it shows us that the authority of the apostles is established by the Jerusalem council. It shows to the Jewish people the Spirit of God really has fallen on the Gentiles. And we are indeed in the new covenant age, There's no more need for signs and wonders to to testify the trustworthiness of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas because now we see in the book of of, uh, Acts, Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, the Spirit of God has indeed fallen among the Gentiles, so brothers, let's not restrict them from uh, the fellowship, making, making them become Jewish before they can become Christian. The other thing we see in the New Testament is the sign and the wonder reveal the human heart. I've already made that point. It helps us with, with Pharaoh. We'll talk about this a lot when we get to Exodus 9 and 11. But it tells us a lot about the condition of the human heart. God gives the signs to the timid Hebrew people so they would not fear Pharaoh. They wouldn't fear his sword when they walk out of Egypt. But Jesus condemns, look here, Jesus condemns the hardness of Jewish hearts in an incredible recall to Exodus 4, which is found in Matthew chapter 12. You might not remember this, so I'm going to remind you. Remember that, that Matthew tells us that when Jesus was going to the synagogue, he found a man with what type of hand? A withered hand. And you can't press this too much. The, the language isn't exactly clear, but it's a clear allusion to Exodus 4. There's a man who has a withered hand, right? And what does Jesus do to show that it's not a violation to heal on the Sabbath? He, he heals the man's withered hand. But then after the hand is healed, do you remember Immediately after, what do they demand? Remember, they demand a sign. Listen to chapter 12, verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They just saw one. They just saw one. The very sign which was given to Moses, the healing of a hand, was an insufficient testimony to them that Jesus wasn't actually speaking the true words of God, that he wasn't the true word of God. It reveals their heart condition. The longing for authenticating signs and wonders shouldn't surprise us because, again, like we said last week, we're created to be glory seekers. We're made for relationships with God. That's how we're created. So we shouldn't be surprised that we seek those things. But we shouldn't be surprised when false prophets and teachers try to use signs and wonders to authenticate their own false ministries. In fact, this is what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 7, we're again using their, as the Hebrew says, their secret arts, which I'm really excited about talking about. It sounds like something from Harry Potter. 
to, uh, to, to replicate the, the miracles of the Lord. So here's a question for us, an application question for us. Should we today expect signs and wonders to authenticate ministry? I believe that today we should not look for these because we have the Scriptures. Unfortunately, I think one of the things that makes this difficult for us is one of the things that's happened in churches over the last 50 years is we've really denigrated the Word of God. We've made the Word of God less powerful. We've taken it from top shelf, most important thing, and put it on the bottom shelf, thing which must be uh, avoided or even apologized for. It's one of the reasons that we try as much as possible to put as much Bible into our service, singing the Bible, praying the Bible, reading the Bible, and then preaching from the Bible if, uh, if God is faithful, right? But, but we're, we're told, uh, you can go to seminaries, some seminaries, you're told words aren't enough, so we, we need visuals. That's, that's fine, nothing against visuals. But eventually, visuals aren't enough. So what we really need is a dialogue. This was the emergent church in the, you know, the, the early 2000s. We need to have a dialogue. It shouldn't be a, a monologue. Who does this guy up here think he is? We need a dialogue. Uh, so I've heard, right? Dialogue's not enough now, so what I'm being told now by consultants marketing is we need interactive worship experiences, whatever that means, because the Word of God is not paramount anymore. We've, we've denigrated it to the place where it's insufficient to do its work. So when you give people that vision of what the Word of God is, then they're going to need, because they're a glory seeker, powerful signs to show some weight. We're created to find weighty things. And if we've taken the Word of God and said, it's not weighty for you, it's not sufficient, it's not enough, we're going to look for other things that will give us weight. Contrast that to how Jesus talks about the Scriptures in a remarkable parable. Perhaps not even a parable. Can I suggest to you that Abraham's words to the rich man in Luke 16 should, should tell us something about the power of God compared to miraculous authenticating signs and wonders? Luke 16, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but it's just these, just these three verses, or four verses, so I'll read them for you. Luke 16, 27 through 31. Listen specifically for how Abraham talks about the Word of God. And he said to, uh, to him, he's, this is the rich man talking to Abraham, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, Lazarus may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, which you'll remember is a, uh, it's a hendiasis to just say the, the word of God, right? It's one of the short ways of saying the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone would go to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says to the rich man, listen, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What does that teach us about the Word of God versus authenticating signs? That the Scriptures clearly have more power to bring faith about than some incredible resurrection of a guy who used to beg in front of a rich man's house. That's been a judgment on my heart this week to think, Lord, do I really think your Word is that powerful? I'm tempted, honestly, as a church planter, every week, are we cool enough? Oh, God, like, help us to not take your word and put it at the bottom. Say, we need more. 
Jesus' report here clearly teaches that scriptures will have a more converting potential in these five brothers' lives than the remarkable sign of the dead beggar walking into the house. This is the virtue, again, of the Bereans, who are eagerly hearing the reports of what God is doing. They're not, they're not cold-hearted. They're not mean about these things, but they hear what God is doing, and what do they do? The virtue of the Bereans, Acts 17, 11, they eagerly search the Scriptures every day to see if these things are so. Authenticating ministry in this day and age, the new covenant day and age, conforms to and clearly communicates the work of Christ according to the unchanging word of Christ. What does the Bible say? That's what makes, if, if Zach Carter's ever going to have an authentic ministry or any other elder at Redeemer or any pulpit anywhere is going to have an authentic, powerful ministry, it's going to be, what has God said about what he's done? But Moses still needs convincing of his own authority. Verses 10 through 17. Incredible, after all this, he has... He's picked up a snake, seen his own hand healed, and turned water into blood, and he's still not convinced he tries to get out of it. He's very human. He says, I I have a bad mouth. Moses may have had a stutter, some other speech impediment that seems to be with the Septuagint and then Jewish tradition teaches, but the text doesn't say that. This is what we think. Whatever he means, however, his true heart is revealed because of what he says next. When God says, I made your mouth, it's good enough. Uh, Moses' true heart's revealed in the next statement, verse 13, where Moses just clearly isn't the one who wants to. He says, Lord, please, verse 13, please send someone else. God, again, doesn't owe Moses anything after this, and yet, because he's patient and merciful, see the character of God. These aren't words that are here, but just think about what God owes Moses, but then see how he acts. God gives him Aaron as a mouth. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't condemn him for talking back. Gives him Aaron as a mouthpiece to speak on his behalf. And here we could make a quick kind of comment, application, about the difference between feeling called to do something versus when we have to just obey God's clear command to do something. I think sometimes we do get confused by the word call because the Bible uses it in a couple different ways that can be confusing, right? The overwhelming usage of the word is when we're called from death to life to salvation. But then there's a, a usage that occurs where Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 saying, live as you're called, but if you can change your calling, change your calling. Greg Gilbert, Sebastian Traeger, have a great book on this. I think it's the seventh chapter in their book, God at Work, where they talk about this more in depth if you're curious. But Paul suggests in that passage that People can change their calling, and we sometimes think of it as more static. One of the best ways to know if you're called to do something is if you're currently doing it. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're married, you're not called to be unmarried. So be married and do it to the glory of God. If you're called to be a project manager, you're called to be a project manager. Do it to the glory of God. You know, if you're called to be a software engineer, be a software engineer to the glory of God. And if you desire to do another thing, you're freeing Christ to do another thing provided that it's not sin. What's different here is that God has specifically commanded Moses to do something. It's a specific, direct command. I've not found this to be the case at Redeemer. I imagine as we grow, it might. But in other ministry contexts, I've heard things like, I don't feel called to evangelism because I don't have that gift. I don't really feel called to be generous with my time or my finances because I don't have that gift. Or I don't really feel called to serve in children's ministry. Let me tell you, Leading a team 
in 2020 to 2021 to open up uh, you know, kids' ministries and student ministries after COVID, uh, I found myself regularly reminding adults that the call to make disciples of the next generation is not something that we can feel yes or no about. It's a direct command from Scripture. The Lord is going to take brickmakers out of Egypt and he's going to make them into smiths and weavers to make a tabernacle for him. We ought to be careful not to be like Moses here and suggest that our lack of a desire. Remember, verse 13, he's just like, Lord, just please send somebody else. We ought to think that our lack of desire comes from a lack of gifting or interest. God can take a bricklayer and make him a smith. He can certainly do the same for you. Maybe our heart is telling us we just don't want to do it, and then we should ask ourselves, why don't we want to do something that God clearly says we ought to do? To evangelize, to make disciples of the next generation. May Christ crucify our apathy. But then the next thing that we see, verse 18 through 23, we see the Pharaoh is not going to be convinced by these. Moses needs convincing, and eventually he resigns to the fact this is happening, but then Pharaoh still needs convincing, and we have a location change. Our kids are are uh, into the Lion King right now, so it's a thing in our family. And, uh, you know, we're singing the songs in our dance parties on Friday nights, and we're, my wife and I are quoting Rafiki back to each other. We're just in that stage of life. But a major plot line, if you're the only person in the universe who hasn't seen this movie, is that Simba is in the wilderness, forgets who he is, he rediscovers his true identity, and uh, he must return from the wilderness to his homeland to uh, save his people, right, from the evils of the hyenas. It's a, it's a major plot that he has to overcome this crisis of identity that he's facing in the wilderness. And when he awakens to the truth of who he really is, he returns to his friends and takes charge, emerges as the leader of the pride. Moses in this is remembering who he is, and he's returning from the wilderness to take his place as the leader of the people of God, knowing he must return to his people. Listen to verse 21 through 23 from Exodus chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do go before Pharaoh, excuse me, do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We need to address a challenge. There's a lot in this verse we're going to be unpacking for weeks, so I'm going to discipline myself not to do everything here. Um, we need to address a challenge which often offends modern Americans uh, uniquely, but I trust uh, and, and I must emphasize has not been a problem historically for the church ever, other than here in America. Okay? Why does God send Moses into Egypt when he already knows that Moses' heart is going to be hard? Americans and now the places where American culture and American missionaries and uh, the bad exports of America have gone, are particularly pragmatic people who don't think in terms of duty, but efficiency. Why waste time with Pharaoh? We're again going to make more time for the idea that God Pharaoh, uh, hardens Pharaoh's hearts and has decreed the death of the firstborn. But when we get to Exodus 9, and, uh, 9 through 11, but notice here that Moses even though Moses knows the end game is written, he doesn't think of this as a waste of time. He doesn't think about the journey to Pharaoh's court as a waste of time. Even though, again, the end game's already been written. Why? Because God has told him to do it, and he's going to do it because God has told him to do it, 
So it's worth doing because of his duty to God. Moses contents himself that the word of God will do its work among the people of God. So then let's look at uh, the next part where Moses has, has decided he's going to Egypt, verse 24 through 26. This is one of the passages why I don't accept the hypothesis that editors compiled the book of Genesis. So uh, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the Pentateuch, um, the so-called uh, document hypothesis. Most contemporary scholars no longer accept the, the documentary hypothesis. It was very common, if you read a commentary, probably up until the 90s, from the late 1800s to the 90s, for this to be a major thesis. But any self-respecting editor would have fixed, so to speak, the Hebrew of this passage. This is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. And um, so I'm going to not pretend to be smarter than I am. I'm going to lean on some commentators here, but say that Moses, as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't really clarify the pronouns. If you're, in, if you're in high school, he, the, these pronouns don't have an antecedent. So it's really hard to know who the he's are in the text. When God said that he's going to kill him, Hebrew's not exactly clear. Your translators do a really great job of making these decisions for us and, and doing our best to pick it together. But it's hard to know why God has gone through this whole thing with Moses and then suddenly um, God is going to meet him and uh, judge him for not having his son take the covenant sign. What is clear here is, as Victor Hamilton points out, a few other commentators, that Moses is about to return to his people, but he's not even led his family in faithfulness. So his son with Zipporah is not circumcised. So Zipporah here takes it upon herself to write what Moses neglected and sees to it that her son has the covenant sign of her husband's faith. Victor Hamilton noted on this passage that some modern evangelical commentators, they paint Zipporah in this moment as a villain. But he and I take as well, even before I read him, a very sympathetic uh, disposition towards Zipporah. And so here's a foreshadowing anticipation of other women in Scripture who act heroically in the frankly, vacate, uh, vacated uh, responsibilities of men who should have acted. Think, for example, about the heroine Deborah in the book of Judges, who uh, Barak has been commanded by the Lord to do something, and he hasn't, and so Deborah summons him and says, you need to do what God told you to do. And then the marriage language, in a lot of way, anticipates Ruth, who takes upon herself faithfulness to Yahweh's people. These are my people that she does. She's a Moabite who descends from the same line as Zipporah's line, their cousins in a way, and her, she acts in a way to align herself with God's people. I think Zipporah does much the same here, mediates on behalf of her husband and saves him from God's wrath. I highly doubt it that when he reunites with Aaron, he's bad-talking Zipporah. He almost, he came within a hair's breadth of death, and his wife saved him by her faithfulness. I'm, I'm sure that Moses was probably not as critical to her as some commentators can be today. But the chapter closes with Moses and Aaron reunited. Moses has accepted that he's the one who's going to lead God's people. God's made provisions for him to lead. He's now brought his family into, into full alignment and identity with the people of God. And Moses and Aaron are reunited. Look, listen to me, or listen to, to uh, the word of God from verses 30 to 31. Aaron spoke all the words that God had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of all the people. 
And when the people believed, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads in worship. Notice what's not said in verse 31. They saw the signs, but it was when they heard the Lord had visited. Paul writes in the book of Romans that unbelievers don't need signs and wonders. Romans 10, 17, but faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, I wasn't saved because the Lord changed the color of the sky that day. Because he didn't. He never changed the color of the sky. Uh, I was saved because friends shared the word of God with me. And they were wonderfully merciful and patient for months with me, regularly testifying to God's grace and goodness. They told me, you know, that Christ had died for my sins to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law, which I couldn't. So he died to do that, but then he was raised from the dead so that I would be made fully alive. I wouldn't have to keep chasing lesser things. But now it's not lost to me that the photo that I took is not one of a blue sky, but of one that's on fire with reds and purples and pinks and oranges and yellows and deep hues of blue. I missed the sign I asked for because my heart had really no interest in believing the Word of God. And my guess is is that the Word of God going out in all of our lives, shaping our lives, making us alive, us being the sign and wonder that we are now alive in Christ is what really will be, as Paul writes in Corinthians, the aroma of Christ, the triumphant procession of Christ that he has really won. Christ was kind to me and melted my heart. Has his word melted yours? Let's pray.